Hello and welcome to the Hidden Stories of the Royal Parks, a podcast series where we explore behind the scenes to discover the amazing stories of the Royal Parks in London. My name is Laura Ashfield and I'm the Community Learning Officer for the Royal Parks. National Tree Week runs from the 27th of November to the 5th of December. So for this podcast, we'll be talking about some of the fantastic trees we have here in the parks. I'll be talking to tree fanatic and arboriculturalist Greg Packman, who, with his passion for trees, is basically an ent. We'll chat about his favourite trees in the park, finding out what makes them special, and also uncover some of the traditional myths and folklore that surround some of our most beloved trees. We'll end with how you can learn more about trees and what you can do to help preserve them. Thanks for listening. I'm joined today by Greg Packman, Senior Tree Inspector at the London Borough of Islington Council. Within his current role, he covers the tree management within the borough, but also liaises with organisations across wider London on all things tree safety. Previously, he was the arboriculturalist for the Royal Parks and has a fabulous and detailed knowledge of many of the trees we have here in the parks. As we are close to National Tree Week, we thought we would showcase and celebrate some of these fantastic trees. Hi, Greg. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, plodding on, not too bad. So Greg, tell us a bit about yourself and where your passion for trees has come from. So I started working with trees back in 2009. Uh, That happened purely by accident, but uh, when I grew up, I was very fortunate to grow up in the sort of rural countryside of North Bedfordshire. So there was lots of lovely countryside and trees. So a lot of my childhood was sort of spent out and about playing in trees in the countryside. But um, I think the first time I properly got into trees was watching the Disney version of Swiss Family Robinson and it's about a shipwrecked family and they build this amazing house inside a huge tree and that was kind of the first point I remember really really wanting to get into trees but I kind of got into my teenage years and sort of music and video games took over and sort of trees were sidelined my kind of life goal at that point was to set up a 1970s rock tribute group called Greg Zeppelin, which <laughs> never Great quite, name. yeah, it's a good name, but it ne- never took off, sadly. Um, so back in 2009, I had a period of unemployment, and at the suggestion of my parents, I started volunteering at a local country park called Harold O'Dell Country Park. Um, and once I got there, I absolutely loved it. And it sort of started off doing just volunteering in conservation and woodland management, and then uh, we had some tree surgeons come in one day so I ended up doing some work with them as they were uh, working on a tree a big willow tree that had been damaged in a storm so from there I kind of decided you know what I really enjoy the work fascinated by trees and I'm sort of learning about things at a rate far quicker than anything I ever really did in school so I decided to enroll at a local college uh, in Northamptonshire called Moulton College where I studied a boroculture which is a very fancy convoluted term for tree management So that was kind of just after the Great Recession. And after that, there was very, very little money in the industry and nobody really taking on any new staff. So I ended up setting up my own gardening business, doing gardening work and then sort of doing some subcontracting work for tree surgeons as well. I did that for a few years, sort of didn't particularly enjoy it, but it was a very valuable experience until 2015. I saw a job advert for the arboricultural post at the Royal Parks. Uh, and that was very much a kind of a move that changed my life, really, and my career. So I started there in October 2015, predominantly working with the London plane trees across the central rural parks. So Hyde Park, Kenston Gardens, Green Park and St. James's Park, uh, focusing on a, a tree disease called Mesaria disease of plane. There's a lot more to it than this, but it's basically a fungus that can contribute to 
branch drop, uh, which is, of course, a risk issue for the visiting public. So there was a big part of that role. But aside from that, there was a lot of um, just general tree tree health, tree safety, tree management work across those parks, including sort of landscape and ecology, as well as community engagement. And through that, I kind of got involved in groups like the Ancient Tree Forum, London Tree Officers Association, um, Urban Tree Festival, uh, before uh, leaving the parks in 2019. It was a very difficult decision, but it was a, a move that I felt like I had to make at the time for career progression. And uh been working with trees ever since then, really, and can't imagine myself doing anything else. And you'll know better than I, like, that, uh, but for the for the listening public here, we've got over 170,000 trees here in the Royal Parks, and there's over... 250 different varieties obviously you were here for a long time if you got a favorite tree or a favorite tree species in in any of the parks i'll give you two different answers really so in terms of tree species kind of you've got the central rural parks so hyde park kenston gardens green park st james's uh regents park as well which are far more sort of modern parks than the outer parks and by modern i'm sort of talking victorian era so they're predominantly dominated by uh, trees like the London Plain. And then you've got the outer parks, so uh, Greenwich Park, Richmond Park and Bushy Park. Uh, Greenwich is a bit of an oddity because it's got some absolutely stunning sweet chestnut, whereas Richmond Park is sort of world famous for its ancient oak tree collection. And then Bushy Park is a kind of a combination between very old lime trees. And by lime, I'm not talking about the citrus fruit, sort of linden or tilia trees, as well as some oaks as well. Those sort of species, oak, sweet chestnut and London plain, they're kind of three of the most important trees to the rural parks and sort of three of my favourite as well. Um, in terms of individual trees, then I've kind of got a favourite tree or two in each park. So in, in Hyde Park, in the Rose Garden, Nanny's Lawn area, there's an absolutely stunning um, Zelkova, which is a Caucasian elm tree. Uh, related to the elm, but not an elm species. It's just an absolutely huge tree, broad canopy, with this amazing fluting trunk. Uh, I can't really describe it, but if you go to the, the Rose Garden, you can't help but see it because it's so big. Um, Kenston Gardens, there's a collection of absolutely stunning sort of three, 250, 300-year-old sweet chestnuts. I can't really pick a favourite out of those because they're just all incredible. Then uh, St. James's in Green Park, um, most people probably can't pull out an individual London plane, but I've got a few individual specimens that I think are just absolutely stunning trees. So they're a few of my favourites, but then there's sort of species like hornbeam and hawthorn, field maple, as well as some of the ornamental ones like snake bark maple or the handkerchief tree, which uh, I absolutely love. They're incredible trees. The handkerchief tree, does it grow, grow handkerchiefs? <laughs> yeah, so it goes by a number of names. The the scientific name is Davidia involucrata, but it's kind of colloquially known as either the Davidia, the handkerchief tree, the dove tree or the ghost tree. Because in kind of late April, early May, that's when it goes into flower. And technically speaking, they're not flowers as such. I think they're, they're sort of modified leaves that don't contain chlorophyll and they're sort of like a pure white colour. And if you see it in flower, um, I'm using the term flower just to avoid too much technical jargon, but it looks like there's just dozens and dozens of white handkerchiefs hanging off the tree. And if you see it when it catches the wind, then these handkerchiefs kind of move up and down in the wind, which is kind of why it's also referred to as the dove tree. 
We have over 1,500 veteran trees within the parks. Can you tell us a bit more about what makes a tree a veteran tree and how important they are and why? Veteran trees are a fairly common term, but so is the term ancient tree as well. Mm. And they're, they're quite often used interchangeably, but they do refer to two very different things. So an ancient tree, as, as the name suggests, is literally a very, very old ancient tree, whereas a veteran tree is predominantly more uh, a certain uh, condition of the tree. It has certain characteristics. So I'll start with ancient trees. So um, although trees can live for a very, very long time and different trees of the same species can live for variable lengths, as a general rule, and of course for trees, there's always a dozen exceptions to the rule, but most species kind of have, to a degree, an expected life, um, well, an ex expected life expectancy. Um, so things like oak trees could live for you know, 600 years to 1,000 years. Uh, yew trees could live from anywhere from 1,000 to up to 5,000 years, potentially. Uh, the oldest known tree in the world is a bristle cane pine in California that they say is around 5,000 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, that could carry on living for a few more thousand years. Who knows? But then you've got trees like the silver birch, which might only live for 60 to 100 years. So you get much, much shorter lived species as well. And the term ancient for ancient trees is pretty much, it, it's a distinct age category of a certain species in its life expectancy. So it's, it's very relative to each species. And you start to see certain changes in terms of how the tree grows. It no longer focuses on upward growth, but more sort of managing its canopy, starting to reduce its canopy at times as well. Uh, more of a focus on uh, fruit production and seed production, as well as sort of seeing distinct changes in terms of the, tr we kind of refer to the tree as growing downwards, because like I said, it no longer focuses on upward growth. And as the tree decays and gets older, branches die, they can break off. And sometimes one of the genius things about trees is that they, when the tree touches the ground, it can redirect its growth to rather than produce leaves, it could then sort of produce new roots instead, something that's called layering. So you Is that see, what like yew trees and is it willow as well do that? Yeah, willow is very good. So with willow especially, if you come across uh, wigloos. Is that like a like a willow structure like yeah so it's basically like a willow like, tunnel or whatever yeah, like an, out, an outdoor structure made of willow yeah. branches we've got one um, at the lookout yeah yeah and so sometimes when you cut a branch off a willow and put a put the branch in the ground to create something like a willow fence or a wiggly or a willow tunnel it can take root because where some of those buds tree buds may have grown into leaves if it's still attached to the tree because when the tree creates new tree cells they're unspecialized cells, so they can become whatever the tree d determines it should become. So those buds and those branches, rather than becoming leaves, they now become roots. And that's kind of like an amazing survival strategy that you see happening with trees, these trees. And when they get to the ancient phase, not even the ancient phase, even at maturity, um, they can sort of survive these injuries uh, to sort of change and redistribute, redistribute their growth, which is quite incredible. But with... Um, veteran trees so while an ancient tree is a distinct uh, life phase relative to the species age life expectancy a veteran tree is more to do with uh, conditions so there could be various 
characteristics of the tree, such as dead branches, wounds and cavities, sort of sap runs, woodpecker holes, uh, wood decay fungi all across the tree. But a real sort of key characteristic is the concept of trunk hollowing, which is where the wood inside the tree, in the heartwood, the middle of, of the tree, which is no longer in use by the tree, starts to become decayed by fungi. That's kind of one of the more key characteristics of veteran trees is kind of that trunk hollowing, which is absolutely crucial for uh, for various types of habitat. And although I said it's not specifically age related, in order to get to the period of the tree's life where it is able to have that trunk hollowing, it has to be a bit of an older tree. So there is a distinction between ancient and veteran. Uh, There is an overlap, but they are uh, fundamentally different, different types of tree, different characteristics of trees that's really interesting thanks greg um can all species become veteran trees or are some more likely to be veteran than others so because veteran relates to certain features and characteristics a tree is more likely to become veteran before it becomes ancient so you, you can't cheat time and accelerate aging so some of our oldest trees in the uk are predominantly in places like Richmond Park, Epping Forest, Windsor Great Park, as well as a variety of National Trust estates and other locations. And these are all fairly similar in that they're either historic royal hunting forests or they're sort of stately manors. So these are locations that have been under sort of continued management over centuries, where there's been a lot of stability and not a lot of change. But those places in the UK are very sort of few and far between. And the problem is that where we've had housing development, industrial development, infrastructure, golf courses, it's involved a lot of trees being cut down, as well as coming out of the First World War. The big, big focus at that time was timber production. So there were a lot of uh, older trees cut down to be replaced by single species conifer timber plantations. So what we now have in the UK is that we have one of the largest populations in the world for these ancient trees, like ancient oak and ancient yew. Then we have a lot of younger trees, but we don't have a great deal in between. And Mm -hmm. there's a whole range of fungi and invertebrates that their entire life cycle is dependent upon those old trees. And some of these uh, habitat features can potentially take 100 to 300 years to fully to fully be created but the life cycle of these invertebrates might only be five to 20 years so what the purpose of this sort of work is is although i said you can't cheat time in terms of creating ancient trees you can kind of cheat time with younger younger trees to create those habitat features so it's doing what we can to try and bridge the gap between the young trees and the very old trees for the benefit of these um predominantly invertebrate and fungi species, but also lichens, mosses, bacteria, all sorts that are dependent and sort of create more of that habitat for future generations as well. Great. Thanks, Greg. And is that why, is that also why we have like deadwood, that we leave deadwood and monoliths in the park as well to sort of bridge those gaps or do dead trees have other functions as well? Yeah. So this is kind of, a very subjective point but i think dead trees are utterly stunning i've i've had discussions I agree. i've had discussions with people who think they're messy and untidy but there is a real aesthetic value in retaining these dead trees as well but um 
it is predominantly for the ecological value. So a tree, wood, is basically minerals and nutrients taken out of the soil, as well as the product of photosynthesis. And over decades, you have all these nutrients being taken out of the ground, stored in the tree, and sort of traditional park management has been sort of tidying up to rake up the leaves to get rid of the dead wood because it was seen as messy or untidy or it was considered at the time to sort of spread disease and further decay. So what has happened is that you end up with very depleted soils because the uh, nutrients aren't going back into the into the ground and what happens is that you have less resource for the trees, you have fewer resources for the fungi in the soil and then because fungi are very competitive and combative with each other, it means that it, it can enable the rise of more pathogenic and more serious fungi as well. But in terms of the uh, invertebrate value, so there's a, a group of invertebrates called uh, detritivores and saprozylic insects. So these are the deadwood uh, eating insects. So the, the adults will lay their eggs in the, uh, in the tree and then the eggs will hatch into the invertebrate larvae which sort of go around uh, the tree, be it at the base of a tree, in the trunk or the branches, and so they're eating away the decaying wood. And the early start of their life cycle is entirely dependent upon the presence of dead wood. And then they'll sort of pupate and emerge as you know, beetles or hoverflies or uh, whatever species they are. So from an ecological perspective, uh, the retention of dead wood is absolutely crucial to have a healthy insect population, invertebrate population, and then there's a whole food chain above that, such as, you know, woodpeckers, bats, all the way up to owls, uh, of which there are quite a few in the central rural parks. So although it's more of a, a more recent thing, keeping more dead wood in the last 30 years, where we absolutely can, first and foremost, retaining standing dead trees and retaining dead branches and dead trees is crucial. But where there's sort of more safety concerns, We'll try and keep either the trunk standing or the dead wood stacked on the ground so the fungi can carry on decaying it and you know over time it's releasing the nutrients back into the soil as well as uh, providing a house and a habitat for all these invertebrates not to mention um, i talked about what things like woodpeckers and bats and birds want to eat but also it's habitat for the birds as well uh, woodpeckers are very obviously uh, tree nesting birds uh, bats will roost in trees and those old dead trees tend to have the habitat features like loose bark and decaying trunks that bats like to roost in. Um, owls will, will sort of nest in uh, cavities and holes in the trunk in the upper canopy. Um, not, not to mention all the other birds like uh, Egyptian geese, which we have a lot in the central rural parks, are naturally sort of tree nesting birds. Oh so, my god, really? They nest in the trees? Yeah, so if you sort of walk through Kensington Gardens especially and look at some of the old trees, you might see an Egyptian goose perched on. I've seen one on a tree in St. James's Park before and just thought, how did he get up there? Is he all right? Well, they're birds. They, they can fly up there. But, uh, they, yeah, so they are. So I, I do believe they are tree nesting birds. So there's all, there's all range of sort of habitat value as well, which is why it's so important to keep standing dead wood and yeah. dead trees. With the geese, like I know they can fly, but you just like they're always waddling around, like, and they're just so goofy, aren't they? Like, it, he just looked really out of place up in the tree. That's awesome. I didn't realise they were were nesting up there. And bats, I just love bats. So anything that provides 
homes and food for bats is winning in my book. Are there certain species that are more beneficial and have higher ecological value than than others? Yes. So uh, the trees that are native to the UK, uh, depending on whose list you go by, there's anywhere from sort of 27 to 40 native trees. But in terms of the trees that we're familiar with, it's things like the oak, the beech, ash, uh, rowan, blackthorn, hawthorn, apple, yew uh, and others. The kind of definition of native trees seems to be around the time that the land bridge between the island of Britain and continental Europe kind of disappeared and Britain became an island. And then kind of the trees that were here at that time. And because that's been over several thousand years, it's given a lot of time for tree species, fungi and invertebrates to develop like uh, symbioses and, and associations. So you do have a number of uh, fungi species, lichen, bacteria, mosses, invertebrates that are very dependent upon certain species of tree. So where you have um, uh, native trees, they are predominantly better for wildlife and ecology. But um, usually when people talk about wildlife value of trees, they tend to talk about uh, oak trees because that's kind of the ultimate tree for wildlife but the problem with the oak is that because it's such a long-lived tree is that it can take about three to four hundred years for certain habitat requirements in oak trees to become realized so there's um a, there's a, a legally protected species of fungus called the oak polypore but one of the reasons it's so rare is that it only tends to live on the heartwood of trees once they've reached about 300 years old so you know, the tree has to hit 300 before that fungus really starts to get active in the tree. And then any invertebrates that are reliant upon that fungus kind of have to wait 300 years plus the amount of time it takes that fungus to start decaying the wood. So in that length of time, you, you could have multiple generations of trees like silver birch or blackthorn, hawthorn or sallow, which are sort of more pioneer species that are very fast growing and quick to die. And then, of course, their wood decays very quickly as well. So they, they of course, create uh, great ecological niches as well. Uh, apparently, less ecologically useful trees are still having quite an important ecological role as well. Obviously, not to the extent of the native trees like the oak or the birch, but they, they do do more than they're given credit for. Plus, also, uh, a tree like the London plane, so carrying on in defence of the plane tree, because it's, <laughs> it's a far, far better tree for dealing with uh, pollution and tough urban conditions so a lot that's something that a lot of the native trees struggle with so if you look at Hyde Park it's pretty much bordered by London plane trees so you've almost got like a, a green barrier between the outside world and the inside of the park acting as like a filter and a protective layer to stop all the harmful pollutants or at least reduce the pollutants coming into the park itself so if it wasn't for those London plane trees, the ecology of the rest of the park could well suffer due to the amount of air pollution that comes in. So it's it's a very complex thing to look at and to measure in terms of the overall ecology and wildlife. That's a nice like poetic way of looking at those. Those yeah. London plane trees as well, like standing sentinels protecting us from the the pollutions and the smog of central London and Oxford Street. <laughs> yeah, because you have... Um, so, um, lichens especially which are very very sensitive to air pollution so where you have very high high areas of air pollution you tend to have a much reduced population of, of lichen 
but we have, we have quite good lichen populations across the parks as well oh, uh, even, even on the plane trees so you know, I, I do think that, that they are contributing a lot more ecologically than they're given credit for i used to be a um when i was a trainee as well in a previous in a previous life uh, a trainee carpenter my master carpenter swore by london plane timber like for benches and and various other things like he was always very excited by London plain wood. It's a very, it's a, stu- it's a stunning wood. It's known as the lace wood because of the, the patterns inside the wood. But it's, yeah, absolutely stunning colour yeah. and patterns. And it's awesome. just very durable. It was lovely. Thanks, Greg. Finally, I think what I'd like to talk about is some of the, like one of the best walks, in my opinion, that you do, or one of my favourite walks, because they're all great. Um, everyone should come on Greg's tree walks. Um, but, is the stuff around the mythology and the folklore associated with the different trees we have here in the parks and and obviously just the different trees that we have here in Britain and the world. Can you just give us a couple of your favourite myths or, or folklore? <laughs> yeah, there's uh, stories. There's a few, so which one to choose? Um, choose a couple, go for it. So one of my favourite is the story of the Rowan tree uh, or the mountain ash, depending on what you call it. So... The, the rowan is one of the more sort of protective and magical trees. And it's kind of, its history sort of starts off in the ancient Greek times where the goddess Hebe was trying to impress uh, the chief gods like Zeus and Hera. So she sort of tried to take them a, a goblet of this sort of magical mead. So as she was sort of flying up to Mount Olympus, she dropped the goblet, which sort of fell down to earth. And to rescue the goblet, she called upon some magical eagles to go back and try and take the goblet because up from Hades in the underworld, um, some evil monster spirit type things, had, uh, evil demons had gone up to try and steal the goblet. So uh, in order to get the goblet back, a fight broke out between the eagles and the demons. And although the eagles got the goblet back, they were wounded. And where blood droplets and feathers from the eagles fell down and lands on earth, rowan trees grew from that spot. Because if you look at the leaf of a rowan, each leaf is made up of smaller leaflets, which have a very feathered-like appearance at the end of each leaf. And the berries in the autumn on a rowan are this vivid red. So they sort of, the leaves represent the feathers and the berries represent the blood droplets. But also in terms of Anglo-Saxon belief, around the around the rowan uh, the color red was a color that protected against evil spirits and witchcraft so the color of the berries was seen again as a protective uh, protective agent against evil spirits and then on the base of each berry is like a five-pointed star a pentagram which is a protective symbol as well so the rowan was a, a tree that was believed to protect against evil spirits so back in the very olden days people would go around cutting small branches off rowan trees bundling the branches together and then they would sort of place them over the entrance entrance way into their houses as a way of protecting the household from evil spirits and i just found that that history utterly fascinating and then yeah looking at something like the oak tree the oak tree because it's such a big long-lived tree every sort of top level god like uh, Zeus or <laughs> Odin or um, uh, Jupiter from Roman mythology, they're all associated w- with the oak tree. And part of that is because the oak tree is so tall 
the branches are seen as extending into the heavens and the roots are so deep that the roots extend into the underworld as well. So these tall, very old oak trees were kind of seen as like sentinels or portals uh, between our world and the afterlife. So quite often you'd have these old trees, oak, ash as well, as well as um, uh, yew trees, which also became sort of holy sites of worship. And even in today's world, we have places called uh, gospel oak or honour oak, sort of relating to those old sites of worship. Um, and because oak trees have such sort of uh, deep and rough bark, in storms they channel water down the bark so in the in torrential rain an oak tree basically becomes a lightning conductor because of the amount of water that's trapped on the bark so as a result oak trees are more likely than other species to uh, get struck by lightning oh, and of course, oh wow yeah so a tree that's struck by lightning of course is a, is a tree that's been favored by the gods so people would go out trying to collect shards and fragments of lightning struck oak to take it back to their homes because that was seen to be like a, a blessing a good favor from the gods and there's a whole range of beliefs around uh, trees being like a like a, a home for the spirits of our deceased ancestors so very big very old and even dead trees were sort of seen as sites and locations where the spirits of our ancestors went went to rest so for a whole range of beliefs and reasons some of these big old incredible trees were sort of real sites of worship and belief in very special places that's amazing what's your advice to someone i always like to leave people with kind of something meaningful to take away like what's your advice to somebody who wants to start out getting to know or identifying trees and how can we as general public as as in inverted commas normal people what can we do to kind of help to champion trees and and look after the trees we've got not only here in the park but also in our local spaces and our gardens any advice yeah so in terms of starting out learning about trees i think the most important like advice i could give is don't be intimidated by the challenge and the amount of knowledge that's out there because quite often people start looking at trees be it identifying trees or learning the biology or the ecology. And it is, it's so deep and so complex that people can get put off. I generally don't believe that tree knowledge is related to a talent at all. Yeah, it's not like singing or athletics. <laughs> you don't, there's not an innate talent. You have to have the interest and the passion to do it. But all it takes is just patience and perseverance and practice and sort of structured learning and not getting put off by the challenge and not getting intimidated by somebody else's knowledge. It's just a very sort of personal journey of education. You know, going to uh, events like those put on by the rural parks or your local wildlife trusts, local wildlife groups, uh, friends groups, uh, the internet and YouTube, there's some amazing resources on there. Um, also getting out and meeting similar, similarly interested people it's a great way to kind of buddy up and sharing um, knowledge and inspiring each other. But in terms of wanting to protect your local trees, getting involved in charities such as uh, the Tree Council or Trees for Cities. So with the Tree Council, you could set up or be involved in a local tree warden network. Uh, there might be a local friends group in your park where you could get involved in. 
Uh, they quite often work in association with the management organisations. Nowadays, through the internet and social media, it's in a much, much better situation to find new people and share new knowledge as well, which I think is a great thing. Thanks, Greg. Like, I feel like that's quite a nice, hopeful note to end on. And of course, um, as I said, Greg does quite a few walks for us here in the Royal Parks as well. And I believe the next one you've got coming up is Winter Tree ID in January. So if you do yeah. have a burning passion to come and identify trees, guys, come on down and, and sign up for that walk. We'd love to have you along. Yeah. Um, Attend, and of course, attending my walks is the best way to learn about trees. <laughs> Definitely, like that's why that's why you're here on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Greg, for giving your time. It's been really, really interesting. I've learned loads. Um, li- like most of all, I think the fact that Egyptian geese roost in trees is one of my <laughs> favourite facts from today. But um, no, I've really enjoyed it, and I just love the stories. I love the story about the rowan tree. Um, when I first heard that from you, it was really exciting. So thank you for sharing that with us today as well. I think that, uh, I think that, I think that's a really important thing because it quite often folklore mythology it does get dismissed, but it's that human connection, that human history that I think is a very important way of connecting people because not everybody's bothered about the ecological value of trees. They don't. Not everybody cares about the amount of carbon stored in a tree. But when you start talking about our sort of shared history and the cultural value, I think that's a great way of bringing more people to trees who might not have discovered it otherwise i completely agree i think it makes it really way more accessible like everybody likes a good story and for me one of the greatest things i feel when i'm in the parks and i see the old trees that you're talking about is that that viewpoint of the tree like what must that tree have seen over the hundreds of years it's spent just standing watch over over the space around it and i I always find that quite fascinating. And we know that a connection with nature um, is definitely beneficial to our health and well-being as well. So Absolutely. trees can make a really big contribution to that as well, I think. Thank you so much, Greg. We really appreciate your time. And no yeah, looking forward to coming on a walk with you soon. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Hidden Stories of the Royal Parks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. The Royal Parks is a charity that supports the eight Royal Parks of London. If you're interested in learning more about how you can support us, please go to royalparks.org.uk forward slash support. Thanks so much for joining us and we look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. Take care. Bye.